Right, so this morning we have a, an exciting topic, and we didn't choose this topic out of nowhere. We are continuing our journey to Jerusalem through the Gospel of Luke, and so we go wherever Luke takes us, and we're going to be covering the end times. And this is a topic that, you know, church leaders say that if you want to fill your pews, just make a big announcement, you're going to talk about the end times, and, and people out of the woodwork will come out of nowhere because they want to hear about the end times. But this is not just something for those who are excited about some conspiracy theorists or love charts or love TV preachers, but every single one of us here undoubtedly have aches in our hearts in certain seasons heightened, longing for the end, longing for well, how will this world end? How will my life end? What, will, what matters really in life? What will, how will all end? And for some of us, it takes everything inside of us just to show up because it's so hard right now. And it's been especially true for, our, for most of the world right now with this crazy, chaotic last few years we've had. And so there's an ache in many, many just saying, what is to come? When will the end come? But believe it or not, the Jews in Jesus' day probably felt this more than most of us. See, the Jews, they, they were living under promises that they will one day be delivered and free. And yet, that promise seemed like a fairy tale. Because literally, as they would pray and read the scriptures of the Torah and, and, and see these promises in the prophets about God coming and making things right, they would look up and they could see a Roman centurion walking down the street, harassing someone. There was a constant tension from what they read here and what they experienced out there. And the reality is all of us feel that too. There's a tension where we see these beautiful truths of the return of Christ and what that would look like, and yet his return seems so far off, so unrealistic for a lot of us. And the Pharisees, their, their thought was that the reason the Messiah had not yet come is because Israel was so wicked, so dang wicked. And so what the Pharisees would do is they, they added laws on top of laws. And if we could keep the laws and be holy enough, then the Messiah, then we would be worthy enough for the Messiah to come and make all things right. And so the Pharisees had that as their mindset. And so with that mindset, they're looking at this broken world. They look at Jesus and say, when will the kingdom come? When will the kingdom come? And that, that is the subject of our text today. When will the kingdom come? Now, I want to warn you, since we're talking about the end times, I'm going to disappoint you if you're hoping that I'm going to pop out some charts on that screen and some dates and maybe some predictions of who the Antichrist is right now or where the temple will be built and all the kind of th different things that I personally grew up with. Because the reality you're going to see in our passage today and the reality of most passages that speak of the end times is the emphasis is not trying to determine the day or the hour primarily, but what you should live like when that day comes. And because that day is coming. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. Matthew 24 is a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, and that's going to have a little bit more emphasis on the signs of the time. But, Matt, but Luke chapter 17, you'll see, is the emphasis is what we're going to be like, what the climate of people, the attitudes of people will be like when Jesus returns. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. So let, let's look at Luke chapter 17, verse 20 again. So the Pharisees have asked this question offline, and so Luke just jumps into it. But being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, 
nor will they say, look, here it is, or, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, the, the Pharisees' question, if you kind of understand the scriptures, is quite laughable. It, 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 it's, it's crazy because it shows how blind they are. They're, they're saying, where's the kingdom, Jesus? And Jesus is standing right in front of them. See, they don't realize that the kingdom is ultimately about the king. And they're looking for some geopolitical leader. They're looking for borders. They're looking for an army. They're looking for some sort of political leader. But they don't realize that the king has already come and he's right there. Behold, he's in the midst of you. But I don't, I don't blame them. Like, I'm not throwing shade on them. Like, oh, you should have saw it. I mean, I, I don't know if I would have saw it. I mean, the tensions were real. They were living under an oppressive regime. Their families were slaughtered raped, pillaged. They, they were overly taxed. I mean, I get it why they were looking for something physical to deliver them at that moment. And they misunderstood that the prophecies spoke of both political realities, but also spiritual realities that must first come. And we're going to get that, get into that in a minute. But what was so interesting is that for chapter after chapter, for the last few years, Jesus has been doing these crazy miracles He's been giving us signs of the kingdom, little foretastes, little trailers like a movie of what the main course would be like. He would heal the sick, the incurable. He would bring sight to the blind. And what does that show you? It shows that that one day in the kingdom, there will be no blindness. Think about this. I mean, I would probably guess at least half of you have glasses or LASIK or contacts. You won't need them anymore in the kingdom. And that feels real for me because I got LASIK a few years ago and my eyesight is failing. I could barely see the people in the back. This fallen world, as much as we can advance technology, is still broken. Even good laser shot in my eye can't keep them going. The deterioration of this world is real. But also, Jesus in his ministry touched those that no one would touch. He restored dignity to those who are outcasts. And what does that show us too? That his kingdom is one that is going to be for all peoples church, right? All peoples. It will be for all kinds of peoples, not the, the rich only or, or the poor only, but all kinds of people stretching uh, across every kind of socioeconomic bound barrier and wall that we in our society have. He was for all, and he not only brought them dignity, but he brought them love, love that they could never, ever dream of, but dare to hope. And what does that show you? That this is the kind of king. He's a king that loves furiously, loves like no one else loves. And most importantly, he restored people's relationship with God. See, see, the kingdom of God addresses the physical, the spiritual, the relational, everything. And where you get abuses in Christianity or in churches is when you take one aspect and elevate it over all the others. It's only spiritual. It's only social. And what the Bible does is it brings it all together, something the world can't do, can't fathom to do. And that's why politics are so divided, because we can only hold on to one reality at a time without the Holy Spirit. And so in Jesus' ministry, he's reversing the curse and making all things right. But everything he did in the earthly ministry was just a foreshadow. It wasn't the finale. The finale was yet to come. And it couldn't come until verse 25, which we'll get to in a second. So, so don't go there yet. Because there needed to be something that must first happen before he could bring the finale. So let's be clear. The kingdom of God has already come in one sense. 
but yet it's not here in its fullness. So let's look what it looks like and shift now to verse 2, sorry, 22, of what it will look like when Jesus returns. And he said to the disciples, notice now he's addressing the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Without getting into too many details, this title, Son of Man, is this divine title dripping with imagery from the Old Testament, especially Daniel 7, and, I, and we preached a sermon on that a few months ago, so if you want to look into that, go into the archives and check that out, but I'm not going to get into it, but it's this messianic title, this divine title. And you're going to see this language called the days. If you look at the days, um, the days of the sun or in this day, it's it's repeated several times throughout. And you can kind of circle that in your Bible. That's a big theme. And and it's just kind of alluding to the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes, when he brings everything right. The day of the Lord comes with a lot of free stuff. So when you think day of the Lord, it comes with a lot of stuff, a lot of good things, but also terrifying things that we're going to see in a second. But what does Jesus, Jesus teach us here? There will come a time where he, the Son of Man, will no longer be visible. And what will people do when this happens? This is the reaction people, some people will have. Verse 23. And they will say, look here, there, or, or, or look here. And then Jesus commands them, do not go out or follow them. This is verse 23. Think about how many tragedies would be avoided if people took this verse seriously. How many cult tragedies? Uh, many, many of you, uh, some of you will be old enough and many of you will be too young to remember Jim Jones at Jonestown or David Koresh or Joseph Smith of Mormonism. If we took this passage seriously, those wouldn't happen in large part. But this is not just for cult leaders, because I know if we read this, we're like, yeah, Sam, I'm not, I'm not really into those cult leaders. That's not me. That doesn't re- resonate with me. That's not relevant for me. But, but, but I think for many of us, it, it's for non-religious people too. Uh, we get ta- caught up in the promises of this politician or this political movement that will finally bring justice, peace, and prosperity. See, we, we may not go after a cult leader who's trying to get us to drink some Kool-Aid, but we can go after the next political leader who's smooth in their speech and persuasive with their policies and look to them as the hope for our well-being and for peace in this land. And what is Jesus saying? This is one of two commands in this passage. He says, don't go after them. Don't even go there. So if you're to say, hey, Sam, did you hear about the so-and-so? He's in so-and-so city and he's doing such and such things. Let's go check it out. It'd be interesting. I'm going to say no. No, I'm not interested. I mean, I may check it out on YouTube, but I'm not going to go there because this, I'm not going. I don't care what they're doing. And in fact, other passages will say that these people sometimes will even do signs and wonders that would, will deceive many. Satan can help people do miracles too, by the way. But, but I think for most of us, and this has been the way of many in the church in the last few years, our issue is not going to be choosing a cult leader but replacing Jesus with a counterfeit. That we are going to be tempted to reject Jesus of the Bible or remake Jesus of the Bible. We will let our cultural passions, the things that our culture thinks are most uh, suitable, most palatable, most important, and then we will read through that lens, this Bible, and remake Jesus in our own image. A Jesus that is palatable for us. The Jesus of the Bible, though, will not be rejected, will not be remade. He will only be received. 
You cannot salad bar this Jesus. The Jesus that is both a lion and a lamb, gentle and lowly, but also ferocious towards sin and wickedness, crazy about the outcast, but also serious about moral purity. You cannot pick and choose him. He's all these things and more. And my concern for many in the churches, especially those who have been reconstructing or deconstructing, you know, ex-evangelicals or whatever you want to call them, friends of mine, is that they have taken whatever is important to the culture and reread their Bibles through that lens, through a very, very limited, historically limited Western lens, and remade Jesus to fit their own sensibilities. You must not do that. Don't think that you are okay just because you don't fall into the next cult leader. You are not safe because we can make our own Jesus with this Bible if we're not careful. So back to the text. Why shouldn't we look if we hear something? Why is Jesus commanding us not? Well, let's look at the reason in verse 24. For, or because, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Remember the day language again, in his day. What is he getting at? Essentially, Jesus is trying to demonstrate that the second coming will be obvious for all. Just like if, you know, there, there are lightnings and then there are lightnings, right? Storms that, that, that can be seen for miles and miles. And people will be like, hey, you see, did you see that last night? Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. It shook the house. It woke up the kids. Yes, I do remember. Right? Like, th- there is an obviousness to this lightning that, that we've all experienced, and that's what Jesus is using as an illustration, is that when his coming comes, it's going to be obvious and visible and sudden for all. It will not be something secret that only some notice. It will be obvious. Jesus' first coming came meek and mild like a ninja in the night in the form of a baby in one geographical place to accomplish his plan. But his second coming will be for all. It, It will be a phenomenon. It will be something that we cannot physically understand, but that everybody will be able to see him. He will come. He will transcend the laws of nature, perhaps, or maybe something that we don't understand of how nature works will come together, but there will be a spectacle for all. But before this spectacular, glorious, global-wide event for all peoples, the worst event in all of history has to take place first. Verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He must suffer first many things and be rejected by this generation. Just 13 words, but packed with so much significance that we do not have time to get into. But, but first of all, think about this. Kings don't suffer. Kings don't die. Th- this is why everybody tripped over, even his disciples tripped over this reality. It didn't make sense hey, I'm coming as the conquering king, but by the way, I'm going to suffer and die first. That, that didn't make sense. And, and maybe if you grew up in the church or you grew up in the West, you've heard that enough to where it seems fine and familiar, but for the average person, that sounds in, insane. And for, for atheists or, or irreligious who, who study Christianity for the time, it, they, they, their reactions are, are right. They're like, what? That doesn't make sense. God is a man and then he dies? This doesn't make sense, and it makes sense why so many people tripped over him. But why did he die, have to die first? Why did he have to suffer first? Well, if Jesus were to come and bring his kingdom in its full glory, 
then there will be no one in his kingdom. (laughs) Because no one would be worthy to be in his kingdom. It would just be straight up dread and vultures everywhere like the end of our text in verse 37. It would be terror for all. And yet because God is merciful and he wanted to bring, extend mercy towards humanity, Jesus comes and he takes the wrath of God mankind deserves so that those who receive Jesus as the rightful king could have peace with God and dwell with him forever. So so why was Jesus rejected by his generation? So you and I didn't have to be rejected by the Father. Jesus' rejection leads to our reconciliation and our peace and our joy. He had to come first if he would have anyone in his kingdom. Do you receive him now with joy? Because if you receive him now with joy, you will receive him then forever. But why should he receive you with joy and peace when you reject him right now? Now, this passage is going to shift, and and let me clarify something. Um, We're going to see the day of the Lord language even more, and and Jesus is going to be pulling from the Old Testament. We don't have time to go to all the Old Testament passages, but I just want to, for those who you know, every time we preach, there's going to be different levels of understanding and experience here. And, and I'm, I'm going to give some things up here for some of you, you know, some of you nerds, right? Um, like me. And you're going to be like, yeah, yeah, nobody gets that, but I get that. I know what you're saying, Sam, right? And that's going to be for some of you. And then most of it's going to be right here. And then some of it I'm going to bring down here for those of you guys who are just seeking out, well, who's God? What, what is Jesus like? So I just want you to know that in general, that's what we're doing. So if I say something, you're like, I don't know what it means. Great, great. Ask us. And, and we want to grow deeper. All right. Now, verse 26. Just as a Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, I need to go into the story of Noah briefly. Would you look at Genesis 6-5? Because this helps us understand the context. Most of the hearers uh, in Jesus' time would immediately know a ton about Noah. And maybe you don't know a ton about Noah, but let me give you a context of what things were like when Noah came, when, 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 in, during Noah's day. It's going to be, should be on the screen. If not, you got a Bible, hopefully, or look at with a neighbor. Genesis 6-5. Well, that's not it. That's a quote. It's okay. You can just stay at uh, verse uh, 26 in Luke 17. Okay, Genesis 6-5. Yahweh, or the Lord, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see the emphatic nature of those words? So in light of this evil, God justly decides to wipe out all of humanity except Noah because Noah found grace and favor in God's sight. Noah and his family. And this is is weighty stuff, and I don't have time to get into all the the ramifications of this reality, but, but this is weighty. All of humanity wiped out for their wickedness. And God calls Noah to build a boat, which is kind of crazy because it's possible the first boat ever built. And it's possible that it's never rained before. So we're talking about crazy talk to the highest level, like loony bin status. And so Noah is not just doing a one-time decision. He's laboring year after year, possibly spending lots of his money and and all of his time to build a boat and being ridiculed. And if you look at 2 Peter, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he wasn't just building this boat. He was preaching about the coming judgment. He was preaching about righteousness and putting putting their trust in God. And people are ignoring and ridiculing him. I mean, who wouldn't? I, I probably would. 
This is crazy stuff. But despite his warnings, they go on business as usual. And what does the text say they were doing in verse 26 in Luke 17, back to Luke 17? It doesn't say they were murdering each other, they were doing everything evil under the sun. It says this, they were eating and drinking and marrying. Now, I don't, did you get the memo? Are those bad things? No, they're not bad. Those are good things. Who created those things? God created those things. Those are God's ideas. He loves marriage. He loves eating. He loves drinking. There's going to be wine in heaven. This is good stuff. But they're not ultimate things. One preacher I read said this, a lot of people miss the kingdom of God because they don't pay any attention to it. It's not that they say, no, God, I'm siding with Satan. Most people miss out on the kingdom of God, not because of outright rejection, but because of the distractions of day-to-day life. They never give it the proper weight. They postpone the decision. And if you look at the, both of these illustrations, you're going to see a theme that what's highlighted is not outrageous sin, though they were outrageous sinners in many ways, if you know the stories. But what's highlighted is their complete, utter disregard of God and their preoccupation with the day-to-day stuff of life. And making those things final, those things ultimate, those things primary. Jesus continues his point and gives us another example from Genesis about a more notoriously wicked city. We, we hear this term, Sodom and Gomorrah, and most people, even non-religious people, know this term or know of it. Verse 28. Likewise, so in other words, just saying, hey, also, kind of like this, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and burying and selling, planting and building. All good things, right? All normal things that we should do. But verse 29, But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Again, a similar point. What is highlighted? I mean, if you know the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, we know how horrible they were. We're talking a citywide gang rape. This is wicked. They were inhospitable. They were greedy, according to Ezekiel. They were selfish. And what is highlighted here? Not that, but their preoccupation with the day-to-day life. That's interesting, isn't it? Of all cities, you could highlight the wickedness and the reasons why God would judge them. You would think it would be Sodom and Gomorrah, wouldn't it? And yet he doesn't even mention that here. Not because he doesn't know it. But because I think he's trying to get at a deeper point that I think some of you are starting to realize. Let's let's, let's look at three takeaways from both of the examples. I'm going to have to speed up a little bit. In both examples, for, for both Noah and Lot, the people were asleep to reality. They went on normal life and ignored God. They were indifferent to him, too busy for God, and functionally lived like atheists. We don't see texts here that say they curse God that they rejected God, that they didn't even believe in God's reality, but they just were too busy for him. Another takeaway is that judgment came surprisingly and suddenly. The word would be called, it was imminent, their destruction. The theological phrase in light of what we're talking about would be called the imminence of Christ's return, okay? Now, there's gonna be a definition on the screen to help you guys, but this is from Wayne Grudem, the imminence of Christ. A term referring to the fact that Christ could return and might return at any time and that we are to be prepared for him to come at any day. 
And if you grew up in church, the imminence of his return, you may be kind of over it. You're like, I'm over that. Maybe because you grew up with fanatical, chart-wielding, insane people who sold their, everything they had, constantly quit their jobs for the next charts or the next prediction, moving out to Montana or whatnot, and you say, and you look at that, and you say, that's weird, I'm not, I don't, I, I'm not about that. Or perhaps you were one of those crazies. And you were disillusioned and disappointed and devastated because those predictions did not come true. And I was born in 1988, and one of the biggest false guys, prophets, did that. And then he was like, hey guys, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 88, and he was wrong, and all these people sold their stuff, and all these people did crazy things in their life. And then he came out and said, hey, I forgot to carry one. It's actually going to come in 89, all right? Crazy. But a lot of people got swept up in that, and a lot of hope. A lot of money, a lot of attention. And because of that, they're just kind of over it. They're like, yeah, Jesus probably come, but I don't, I don't even know about that stuff anymore. Or perhaps you're in the category that you study the scriptures, and in them you've seen the different t- verses about signs and different things that have to come, seemingly have to happen before Jesus comes back. And so you have taken the position that, you know what, Jesus is not going to come today or tomorrow because this hasn't happened like 6,000 unreached people groups haven't heard the gospel of the kingdom. Thinking Matthew 24, 14. Or other passages like that. And maybe you're like that. Now, I want to be honest with you. I've been all of those three things at different times. And I think I've been wrong. I think I've been wrong. I've been wrong about my attitude. Um, Because here's the reality. There are passages that speak of Jesus' coming after certain signs happen especially if you look at Matthew 24 and, or other passages. That's true, and those are there, and you have to reckon with those passages. But also, if we had time, I could show you 18 verses on the screen right now that we can go over that will talk about Jesus is coming quickly, coming now, coming unexpected. No one knows the day or hour. Be ready, be ready, be watchful right now. I don't know how to reconcile those perfectly. I want to be honest with you. And in the past... When I studied eschatology and I did a lot, it was like my hobby. I read Revelation once a week, three chapters every day, seven days a week. You read the Revelation every week. I did that for a long season. It was my hobby. And to this day, I don't know. But what I can tell you is this, is that the majority of the passages that talk about Jesus's coming do not emphasize quitting your job, selling your possessions, but living holy, being ready not having compromises, not having unforgiveness, walking in love. And the problem is most in the West, when we hear about these predictions of it's going to happen May 22nd, 1988, or this or so that date, we have primarily focused on evangelism and focus on material things. But you will not find that in those scriptures. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, look at 2 Peter 3, look at these passages. What is emphasized? Be blameless, church. Be ready for him. Are you right with God? That is the emphasis. And that is really helpful for me because I have ignored the imminence of the Lord's return because of all that my background and because some of these passages and have not always lived like he is coming soon and coming now. And if you read the New Testament, the emphasis is quickly, he is coming. Be watchful. And what does watchful mean? Watchful does not mean try to watch the news every day like Fox or CNN and make sure you know the signs of what's going on. Watchful is mainly a spiritual reality for your heart. 
and your people and your family and your friends. Be watchful for them. It's not a make sure you keep up with the news. That's not watchfulness according to the Bible. So regardless of your position, let me say, whenever you look at the passages, focus on are you right with God? Are you ready for him to come? Can you say right now, come Lord Jesus without fear? Can you say that right now? Can you say that with all your heart that you're ready for him to come right now without regret? I, I never want to preach a sermon if I have not let first preached it to my own heart. And this week I've been trying to deal with that reality. Would I live, Sam Choi, would you live very differently if you knew, if the angel came to you tonight and said, Jesus is actually going to come a month from now? Would my next month live, look very differently? And without trying to be proud, I would say by the grace of God, it would look very similar with just a few tweaks. Just a few tweaks. But if you were to know right now, an angel came down and it was legit, it wasn't like some, you know, CG stuff. It was like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to give you guys a heads up. Jesus is coming in a month. And if your life drastically changes significantly, something is wrong with your life right now. If all of a sudden you throw away that stuff, all of a sudden you block these sites, all of a sudden you finally reconcile with that person, something is wrong. You, we must live as if he's coming today because he may come today whether it's because you die and you see him or because he returns and makes all things right. And church, I don't want you to be sleeping. And if you read 1 Thessalonians 5, a big emphasis is they're caught sleeping. And people out there are saying peace and prosperity when actually they're caught sleeping. And we're going to see that more in this passage. Now I'm totally off my manuscript, but I think I got most of it. Now, the third observation you see when you look at this passage is that in both examples, God's people had a heads-up warning. And though their whole world was destroyed, God's people were spared. In the same way, God's people are given a heads-up warning, and we are. This book is giving you the warning now. You do not need a prophetic vision or a dream to warn you this is enough. I am warning you now. God's people are given this special revelation of a heads up that the end will come and you must be ready. Church, we must live in light of seeing Jesus any day now. So let us watch and wait. Now let's look at verse, um, we're going to skip verse 31, but when, what you'll see there is that there will be no second chances on that day. There's no attempt to escape. There's no last minute Hail Mary prayer that you can throw out when he comes. It will be too late. But look, let's look at the final command in this passage, verse 32. Three words only. One of the shortest verses in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. And if you're reading this passage quickly, it's easy to, easy to jump over that. But, but listen, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? Very quickly, her husband and their family moved near Sodom and Gomorrah, and I think likely because they wanted to be near it. The text in Genesis kind of alludes to it. They wanted to get near the action, but not technically in the city, but close enough to the action. So they're not technically sinning, but near enough to the door of rampant wickedness. And as the angels are ushering away Lot and his kind of righteous family, away from Sodom and Gomorrah, what happens? Lot's wife turns around. She looks back. And she's, she dies. She turns into like a statue of salt. And what was the problem? The problem was she didn't just look back. She longed back. She longed back. She wanted 
that life. She missed it. Her heart was divided. And how many times have we preached throughout the scriptures that there is no such thing as one foot in, in, one foot out with Jesus. It's all or nothing. Jesus is Lord of all or not Lord at all. And she wanted a little piece of that old life. She longed back. And, And so what is Jesus saying here? Hey, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Do you, are you like Lot's wife? Do you miss the old days when you could just kick back and do this or that? Or go back into those substances or back into those toxic relationships or back into those wicked habits? One theologian put it like this. I think it'll be on the screen. You look back, you long back. Maybe you've even gone back. You're doing things you should not be doing, believing things you should not be believing, condoning things that you should be condemning. Is that you? Church, remember Lot's wife. There is nothing good the world has for you. Don't go back into that dungeon. Don't put back on those shackles. Don't go back to that door. Flee, flee, flee. Remember Lot's wife. Has nothing but death for you. Don't go back. Don't look back. Isn't it striking she didn't even go back? She just looked back. A little look wouldn't harm. A little curiosity didn't ever kill any cat, Sam. Don't even look back. Set your gaze on Christ and go full steam ahead. The reward is worth it. He's worth it. Now look at verse 33. Jesus calls us to count the cost and see the reality of everything. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This is a profound statement that confused many, but the simple truth is this. If you seek to live your life in a way to protect your life, your ways, your choices, your freedoms, your dreams, you will ultimately lose everything eternally. If you let go of it all and let Jesus be your everything, you will gain everything eternally. It's just good math. But most of us are stupid. You can spend your whole life on that which will be lost forever, or you can spend your one life on that which will last forever. And sadly, most in the world choose the temporary over over the eternal. And I pray that our church would be wiser than that, that we would be awakened to the realities of eternity. And let me tell you something. Those who choose differently will sometimes be in the same church, same home, same bed. Look at verse 34. And I tell you, that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding like wheat together. One will be taken and the other left. Listen, again, normal, everyday, mundane kind of language. But it doesn't matter if you're friends with someone who loves God or even married to someone who loves God. If you do not have a saving, real relationship with Jesus, you will not be spared on that day. Doesn't matter if you share a bed. Doesn't matter if your dad is a pastor. Doesn't matter if you paid your dues back in 89 or back when you were younger. If you do not have a current life of repentance and treasuring Jesus as first, you will not be spared in that day. I don't say that manipulatively. I say that with love and care. And what do the disciples wonder they're like where is this all going to happen man (laughs) maybe they're like i want to avoid this place where is this going to happen verse 37 and they said to him where lord and jesus said to them where the corpse is there the vultures will gather real quick this is a grim and chilling picture 
Vultures, where do they come? They come where there's death. They come when something's dying or it's dead. And they circle around slowly and then eventually they, they feast. And where you see the vultures, there you'll see the dead. The dead who are slain. The dead who are under judgment. Now this is more of an illustration, but the, it is helping us grasp a reality that you see more in Revelation. Now two responses to this text for us. More than that, but let me highlight two. The first response that you could have are like those in the days of Noah saying, I'm busy. I'm not interested right now. Maybe later. I don't think judgment is actually coming. I think you're a little crazy. I don't think God is going to do anything. And my fear are not those in here or those hearing my voice one day who outright just, just reject Jesus. Oh, Jesus isn't king. He's not God. But those who are spiritually sleep, sleeping, those who are listening to the sermon saying, Oh, that's nice. But not realizing that this text is about you. That's my greatest fear. For those of you who are sleeping, but you don't know you're slumbering. Wake up. This is your warning. Jesus took the wrath you and I deserve so that you and I might be spared. And not just spared, forgiven, loved, cherished, adopted. And this offer is live and available right now. It may not be tomorrow. I'm not saying that manipulative, but it's reality. It may not be live tomorrow, but it is right now. And so if that's you, please come talk to a member saying, I am not sure I have peace with God. What, is it, what does it look like to have peace with this king, to know this king, to receive forgiveness from this king? Come talk with someone today. And the second response is this. Like Noah, we put our faith in Jesus and we endure the ridicule of maybe our family, our friends, our neighbors, that we put all of our time, our treasure, our talents, our attention into doing what God has called us by faith. Even if we look like crazy people, even if we're the only ones doing it, we do it because we have a reward coming that is lasting. That we know that when we lose our lives in this age, we will gain our lives forever. And we'll gain a reward that cannot be taken for us, for a king who's coming soon. Church, for many of us, the coming of Jesus is the last thing on our minds, if you want to be honest. It's the last thing on your mind. And let me tell you this, it seriously affects your life, if that's you. The less real his imminent return is, the more obsessed you will be with the here and now. The more you will succumb into temptations, the more you will engage in materialism and not be able to shake the the. The, the, the grips of the world, the more you'll care about stupid things that don't really matter. So if, you, if that's you, the way, the antidote of living a life that really matters is not trying to live a life that matters. It's getting a picture of this reality that Jesus is coming and his kingdom is, a, is real. And then it will reverse engineer and start affecting all the stupid things that we put so much time and attention on all the stupid games we play on our phone and the, the endless scrolling, all the wasted time, our wasted lives on things that don't matter. And if you really grasp that he's coming, it will reorient all these good gifts in the right way because the, 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 the danger of what I'm saying right now is for us to despise the good gifts of this world like jobs or marriage or, or, or picnics or good food because those are God-given and you should be, take them and receive them with thanksgiving. 
but they have to be God-word. They have to be God-oriented. And if you get the second coming, you will actually enjoy good gifts more than ever because you're not trying to make them ultimate things. When you put the burden on temporary things to be ultimate things, to be heaven kind of things when they're not supposed to be, you will actually have less pleasure out of them. But if you know where heaven is, heaven's going to be, and let heaven be heaven, you can actually engage in those good gifts in a greater joyful way. Expectation of the return of Christ is necessary for faithful living as a disciple church. And what would it look like if our community was marked by those who are longing and looking for Jesus? What would that do? How would that reorient our free time or our spending habits? How will it fear you, free you from the fear of man, church? How would it fuel our passion to finally end that addiction once and for all or finally forgive that person that you're eating up with bitterness for? Jesus is coming, church. So let us live expectantly. For the return of Christ brings freedom and power and purpose for all of life. Let's live like he's coming this week because, church, he might. Let's pray. Father, I pray that I was faithful to your word faithful to your truth and nothing but your truth. Help me, God. And if what I said is true, and these realities are true because they are, that you're coming soon, that it would radically reorient all of our lives, our attention, our hobbies, our affections, our money, our everything. Because ultimately, you are our prize. We long to see your face, Jesus. And for those who don't long to see your face, who that is just kind of a a side thing that's in the back of their mind, Lord, let it be forefront. Let it be everything for us. Let our hearts long to see your face, long for your return, long for your redemption, where everything is made right. No one will be sad and everyone will be glad. But Lord, those those in this room right now who hear my voice, who aren't sure that they will be one of yours when you come, May they not leave today until they're right with you. May they be ready for your return. May every single person in our church be ready. And when you come, there's going to be sheer joy and not terror. Let that be, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.